Well, if you'd open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6, our penultimate sermon in this series through 1 Timothy, my true child. Penultimate's just a great word, isn't it? It means second to last. Um, I don't know when I learned it, but yeah, yeah, I like that word. We got eight verses of Scripture to cover today and eight verses next week, but not in the order that they fall on the Bible, but uh, by order of, uh, well, we're we're organizing them by topic. So if you look, you see that this morning we're going to cover verses 6 through 10 and verse 17 through 19. And then we'll come back next week and finish up the book of 1 Timothy. Now, a quick commercial. Uh, I haven't put it in the bulletin yet. Need to, but we have a unique sermon series in August called Scripture Stories. And that is going to be folks in our church family who've had a scripture or a group of scripture made a significant impact on their life through a time of trial or testing. And those folks are going to share their testimony and kind of interweave that with my sermon and question and answer. They're going to be a little bit different every Sunday during the month of August, but trust me, you will be inspired when you hear what God has done through His Word in the lives of our brothers and sisters, so you won't want to miss that in August. But this morning, we're talking about one question, and that is the question, does my stuff own me? When I talk about stuff, I mean our possessions, our money, our bank account, but also the stuff we own. And so I would give you like the hashtag, you know, don't be stuffy. We don't want to be stuffy, but unfortunately, as Americans, we tend to be stuffy. Our nation is blessed. We have the highest gross domestic product of any other nation in the world. Ours is $19 trillion. So that is if you add together all the goods and services produced in America in one year's time, $19 trillion is our GDP. China is $13 trillion. We're 30% more than them, but we have 30% of the people of them. And then there's Japan and Germany and the United Kingdom. But then if you think about something that hits a little closer to home, the median per capita income. So that's per person in the country. So uh, keep in mind that figures on children or teenagers that aren't working and grandparents that are on Social Security and everybody in the middle. Norway, Sweden, and Luxembourg all have like more than 18,000. We're like 15,500. But then you think about... Household income and the way the United States ranks in that. But the one that really gets me is household indebtedness. In the United States, we have $13 trillion of personal household indebtedness. 76% of our annual GDP is in indebtedness. The average U.S. household is indebted $137,000. Now, yes, the biggest part of that is their home, but $16,000 in credit card debt is average. $30,000 in auto debt is average. $50,000 in student loan debt is average. Those numbers are absolutely staggering to me. And those are just the dollar numbers. One other thing that I thought would be interesting, because you see them all around, and so I just did a quick Google of storage units in the United States. Would you like to guess how many storage unit facilities are in the United States? Not the individual units where you buy one, you know, but how many acre or or, or units, you know, where you drive in the front gate? 48,500 according to 2014 statistics. By comparison, in 2014, there were only 14,000 McDonald's and 12,000 Starbucks. 
65% of folks that have a storage unit also have a garage or multiple garages. And on average, there are 21 square feet of storage unit space for every American living and breathing. We've got a lot of stuff. We're kind of stuffy people. We got so much stuff, we got to buy some place else to put our stuff. And we build more places to put them. But Scripture talks to us about our stuff. And so I want to ask you if you're able to stand with me in the honor of reading God's Word, if we will start in verses 6 through 10, and then we'll skip down to verse 17, 18, and 19. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Skip on down to verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, which richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good deeds, to be rich in good, to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of life that is truly life. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we're thankful for your word that teaches us. And as we open it today and confront the issues of our possessions, our stuff, our finances, and the way that if we're not careful, they'll get a hold of us rather than us holding on to them. We thank you that these things are in Scripture. We thank you that you care and that you'll give direction. And we pray that whatever it is your Holy Spirit speaks to us, we'll obey. We ask these things in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Well, before we get into our exposition, let's look at our Scripture memory verse of the month. Miss Leslie can put that up there for us. Let's say it together. 1 Timothy 6.12 Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. 1 Timothy 6.12 When Paul uses this phrase, fight the good fight of faith, we'll get cover that in next week's sermon, our final sermon in 1 Timothy. He's referring to all the things that have gone before in the book of Timothy. Every topic that we've covered about how to live and how to relate to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ and in the church, and even things like this having to do with our possessions and our finances, Paul is including in that idea of fight the good fight of faith. In other words, I know it's going to be a struggle for you. That's why I'm instructing you about it, and I'm trying to encourage you how to live. So let's turn our attention to our scripture, verse 6. We've got eight different Um, scripture verses today, and they're neatly arranged in eight different questions on your outline for you, with a ninth question for a concluding thought. But that verse 6 says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. And I asked the question there, that's the first question on your outline, what is the antidote to my stuff? What is the antidote to my stuff? 
the stuff that I have, how do I deal with that? I don't know at what age it is that we learn the word antidote, but I'm assuming it has to do with some sort of science fiction television show, right? Or some action adventure or something where somebody gets bit by a snake or venom and they've got to get an antidote. Or, you know, uh, something happens and you've got to get an antidote. Antidote is the thing that counters the bad thing that fixes it, that makes it better. And so I chose that word just for us to think about. When we are dealing with our possessions that so easily get a hold of us, what's the antidote in dealing with them? Look at what Scripture says. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness is only truly godliness when it's not dependent on circumstances. When we can live a life that is not propped up by our stuff, our own abilities, our checking account, our relationships, when those things are taken away from us and we have to depend on Jesus for who we are, what we do, and how we're sustained, that's where we see the true character qualities of godliness. But that scripture says godliness with contentment is great gain. What does it mean to be content? This word contentment is used in 2 Corinthians 9.8. You can write that one down, 2 Corinthians 9.8, as a noun. When it says, And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things at every time, having all you need, you will abound in every good work. It's actually a noun phrase, having all you need. God's provided for your needs. All things and all the time, all you need. Then, if you were to look in Philippians 4.11, It's used as an adjective. It says, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Paul is recounting all sorts of good things that have happened to him, all sorts of bad things that have happened to him. And he says on the bottom line, Philippians 4.11, write that one down. I'm content in every circumstance. Ralph Earle, a commentator, says contentment is one of the greatest assets of life. He's really summarizing that last phrase. Actually, he's expanding it. Because your scripture says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Present contentment for Christians is buoyed by our future hope. And it's independent of our material things as we focus on the fact that God's taking care of us. And God provides for our needs. That's the antidote for my stuff. And so that's the beginning of Paul expositing this idea. But let's move to verse 7. Verse 7, and your second question is, what's the reality of my stuff? What's the reality of my stuff in verse 7? For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. That sounds sort of cliche. You've probably heard it before. And maybe you didn't even know it was Scripture. It is Scripture. It's right there. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 7. You brought nothing into the world. I mean... Some of you have been present uh, at, at, at childbirth, and you notice those little children don't come out holding anything, do they? Except maybe an attitude, <laughs> with their little fist clenched and their eyes shut. <laughs> There's nothing in the womb to come out with them. And though you may think you have a lot of stuff, you can't take it with you. 
Jerry Clower tells a story of a very wealthy man in West Texas that had a Cadillac. And when he got in his Cadillac, he would take off his eyeglasses because he had had the the windshield of the Cadillac ground to be his prescription so he could see. That's how wealthy this man was. This man was so wealthy that when he died, he wanted to be buried in his big old Cadillac. So they got the earth movers and dug a gigantic hole and got a crane and lowered him down and covered him up with dirt. And one of the hired hands said in Jerry Clower's hearing, man, that is really living. The man's dead. Yes, he got buried in a Cadillac, but he ain't living no more. I didn't deliver that punchline like Jerry Clower. That's why I'm not a comedian. Thank you. What's the reality of my stuff? We're not born with it. We can't take it out with us. Job says in Job 121, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. Or I will return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. When is Job saying that? This is after he just found out all of his children have died. All of his stuff is gone. He was a wealthy man. And his first statement is a philosophical type statement. The stuff I had, I didn't have when I got born. Stuff I have, doesn't matter when I die. Ecclesiastes 5.15 says that everyone comes naked from their mother's womb. And as everyone comes, so they will depart. They take nothing from their toil and uh, that they can carry in their hands. Scripture reminds us that our stuff is just stuff. We got to have stuff to live. We appreciate the fact that you are wearing clothes today. Amen. And it's good that you had a car to get here today. It's nice that you have a home to live in and that you have food to eat and that you have things that are hobbies. There's nothing wrong with those things. It's nice that you have what you need. We need to remember, however, that our stuff allows us to serve God, not that we should be serving our stuff. There's a difference in perspective there. Let's go on to verse 8 as we go further. Your third question, and that's from verse 8, is what stuff do I really need? What stuff do I really need? Verse 8 alludes to it. It points to it for us. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. The word there for clothing literally means covering and can also be used for shelter. I.e. that you have something to keep you covered from the elements, to take care of you, a home to live in. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. When I was a missionary in South Africa, I was a regional youth worker missionary. um, And so I worked with churches that were established all around with their teenagers. But I lived in a place called Tusong, Place of Help. And we provided assistance, food assistance, job training, all kinds of things for people living in squatter camps. If you can imagine a tin shack that's nine foot wide by nine foot tall and about seven feet tall with a dirt floor that the poles are made out of something they cut down, you know, uh, out in the forest. Not that there's a forest about yay big. And, you know, they scrap it together and they're living in these little shacks. And that's where I was, day in, day out. The amazing thing is that even though I was used to growing up in middle-class America in a four-bedroom home with two baths and a two-car garage, and I found out you don't need all the stuff. You need a bed to sleep in. You need a roof to keep you dry from the rain. You don't even need electricity. And you know what? That happiness is not always determined by the amount of stuff I have. 
Because those folks, as poor as they were, were some of the happiest folks I ever met. There was a joy that went beyond their circumstances and went beyond their possessions. Yes, their life was difficult because of their income and because of the place they lived, but it was amazing to me. Philippians 4.19, do you know that one? We need to turn over to that one. I'm not just going to tell you to write it down. Turn a few pages to the left in your Bible. Philippians 4.19 reminds us of the answer to this question. What stuff do I really need? When Paul says, And my God will meet all your needs according to His glorious riches in Christ Jesus. All your needs. We have to contrast that with the things we want. It's not bad to want things, but if our life is controlled by the things we want, and then those things that we wanted begin to control us, particularly because we went into debt to buy them, and then we're one paycheck away from ruin, we may need to consider our lives and the amount of stuff we have and the control that stuff has over us and how we use what God has provided for us. The next question gets us going that direction. And that's, what's the temptation of my stuff? That's the fourth question on your outline. What's the temptation of my stuff? Verse 9 says, people who want to get rich fall into a temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. I think all of us at one time or another have thought about, well, it'd be nice if I had a little more money. Might have thought it'd be nice if I had a lot more money. That I could buy this, I could do that, I could go there, I could do that. But Scripture tells us that it's foolish and harmful to chase after riches like that. It's senseless, it says. And then this picture that Paul paints here. So he's being pretty didactic at this point, right? He's just giving us principles, right? But look, he paints a visual image here that People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap. So we think of a trap on an animal, right? But then this last one. And plunge them into ruin and destruction. This Greek word plunge is a vivid picture. It's used elsewhere in Greek literature of a monster grabbing someone and plunging them into an abyss, right? That's not scripture, but that's how that word is used elsewhere in Greek literature. And the pairing together of the words ruin and destruction suggests irretrievable loss. In other words, if your life is about pursuing stuff and about pursuing riches, you're going to be in a trap. You're going to be plunged into somewhere where you can't get out of on your own. Now, we've got to note that there's no condemnation for the possessions themselves. It's not wrong to have money, it's not wrong to have things, but it's the way that we as humans want to possess those things and control those things, when really it's their possessing and controlling us. So I asked you a question though, and we need to maybe think about the answer. What's the temptation of my stuff? That might be slightly different for all of us. The temptation might be that you want more than you need. Excess. That could be the temptation. 
And it may be that the thing that's behind that temptation to excess is pride. How nice of a fill-in-the-blank do you need? How many fill-in-the-blanks do you need? Why is it that you need that many or that nice of one? Is it pride or is it that it serves you somehow besides pride, that it does something, that you need that many features on that thing? But maybe is the issue control. That the temptation of my stuff is, this is my stuff. And although the rest of my life is a mess, I'm going to control this stuff. You don't touch my stuff. You don't move my stuff. You better not get rid of my stuff or you better not sell my stuff because I'll be angry with you. All of us struggle with control, but then again, what's control rooted in? There's fear in there, but it's also pride. Pride that this is mine, not yours. And that's the temptation of our stuff. is rooted in the most basic part of our human nature that says, God, I don't need you, I've got this that doesn't recognize that God provided for this, that this is mine, and you don't get to tell me what I get to do with this, God, because this is my stuff. And all of us, at one time or another, with one thing or another, act a little bit like a toddler. Mine! Mine! It's my stuff. And the God of the whole universe is sitting up there with his arms folded, looking down on us, saying, I wonder when they're going to learn. What's it going to take for them to see that I provide all their needs? And they don't need all that stuff. Your fifth question this morning. We've kind of got this way already, but the question is, how does the love of money hurt me? Now, this one's specific to money, not just stuff, because the Scripture says money in it. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Then it goes on to say, some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. So that second half, let's take care of first. Some people eager for money have pierced from the faith, or wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. One of the other problems indicated by that second half of that scripture right there with the false teachers that had come into the Ephesus church after Paul had planted it was not only were they saying that you needed Jesus plus, but they also had to have had some sort of what we would call health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. That you've got to give to them. Isn't it interesting how most Christian heretics always have some sort of heightened or elevated, there's money involved in this sort of thing. Because they, as the false teacher, want the money. To put themselves up on a pinnacle or to fly a fancy plane or to have a mansion house or something like that. Not the picture that Scripture has of a servant of the church. And so Paul says those sort of people that have pursued that sort of thing, it's a false gospel and they've pierced themselves with many pangs. In other words, they're going to hurt themselves more than they imagine. So avoid those, but let's go back to the first half of verse 10. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. People miss that one. They misquote it. What does it say? For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It doesn't say money's evil. We need money. God gave us this as a way to make transactions, to take care of things. It doesn't say your stuff is evil, your possessions are evil. We need those things. So again, it's not the material things themselves that are evil. Those are neutral. They can be used for good or evil or neutral. But it's our possession of them, our control of them, our pride in them, and Are we holding those things palms up to God as if to say, God, they belong to you and whatever you want me to do, 
Or are we holding on to them tightly and we're saying, mine. Even though the God of the whole universe has provided them for us. It's the love of money. That's the root. And the literal phrase there is all the evils. In other words, every kind of evil there is in life. If you got a love of money, you're going to find a way to get involved that kind of evil. I'm not just talking about the big ones we would name, you know, like drugs or anything like that. But any other kind of evil, not just gambling or something like that. But spending too much money on yourself to buy stuff. Neglecting, giving, meeting the needs of others, being generous, sharing. All the other kind of things that Scripture tells us we should do. As believers in Jesus. So your question really is. Are you serving your money or is your money serving you? Am I serving my stuff or is my stuff serving me? Is it about your thoughts, your time, your energy, your debt? So we've got to consider that. Verses 11 through 16, we're going to skip over today. We'll get there next week. But it talks about what sort of life we should pursue, choices and character. And it says in verse 11, but you, man of God, flee from all the, this. And what is he talking to flee? He's saying everything I just talked to you about, about the love of money and letting stuff control you, flee from all that. And that's where we're going to pick up with an exposition of the kind of character Paul is directing Timothy and us by extension to have in next week's sermon. So move on down to verse 17 and your sixth question. And that's what are two commands to the wealthy? Now before you check out and you think, well, I'm not wealthy. That's the reason I did the little introduction I did. I wanted us to see that all of us who live in America, in comparison to the entire rest of the world, are wealthy. Yes, if you live in Luxembourg... There's not that many people there. You could be called Luxembourgish, which is kind of fun. Or if you were Swedish or a Norwegian and you lived in one of those places, your you know, per capita income would be higher than the United States. But they've also got socialized systems, and I don't think they get to keep as much of it as we get to keep. Even though you might complain about taxes here, you're still better off than you are in those sort of countries. That we have more stuff, more ability than anybody else anywhere in the world. So I would like to submit to you that when Paul talks to wealthy people here, he's not just talking to somebody you think lives in a big house or drives a nicer car than you. He's talking to you and me. Can I get an amen? Even if you're on Social Security and on a fixed income now, you're still wealthy compared to the rest of the world and certainly compared to the type of folks that Paul was writing to. So it applies to us. Look at verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides for us with everything for our enjoyment. So there's two things that are commanded here. Two things. Don't be full of yourself and don't be too dependent on your money. Don't be full of yourself, prideful, arrogant, and don't be dependent on your money because that money's not going to last forever. It's so uncertain. Stock markets crash. Companies fold. People get fired. 
health changes on a dime. You feel like you're fine one day, you start to feel sick the next day, you go to the doctor and the doctor says, and they name the C word cancer and your life changes like that. So we've got to take care and remember these commands not to be too full of ourselves, or not to be too dependent on our money, but on our God that provides all our needs. Put our hope in God who richly provides everything for our enjoyment. Think about Psalm 23. You know the psalm, Yea, though I walk through the valley of shadow of death. Yeah, that part. No, 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 that's not the part. I want to talk about verse 5. Verse 5 of Psalm 23, I need to read it so I don't get it wrong. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Not so much that part, but the second part. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. That's a poetic, symbolic picture that God has anointed you, blessed you as his child. And your cup overflows means you have more than you need. Even those of us that struggle with debt and Maybe have some bills to pay. Most all of us have more than we need. And our commands in that are not to be too full of ourselves in that. And not to be too dependent on our money and our stuff. Let's move on to your seventh point. Seventh point of your outline is what are two actions for the wealthy? So those were two commands, but here are two actions in verse 18. You've got to love this. Paul's writing it so I can apply this sermon. So I don't have to come up with action points. Paul's already got them. Go Paul. Verse 18. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. So the two commands here are goodness and generosity. That's pretty easy. Write those down. The two commands, the two actions are goodness and generosity. That no matter who you are, no matter what you have, we are told to be good to others and generous to others. Wealth imposes a heavy responsibility on its possessor. The greater our means for doing good, the greater our obligation for doing good. And God's Word tells us that we're to do good and to be generous. That phrase, willing to share, I love that one. i got to say it right. Koinonikos. Does it sound like a word you know from church before? Koinonia. Koinonia means fellowship, right? That's the church, the the Bible word for fellowship, being together, sharing our needs. Koinonikos means meeting the needs of others. Isn't that a beautiful picture that we use what we have to meet the needs of others? And those are the two actions we're to take. Let's get to your eighth point in your final scripture today. And that are what are two outcomes of generosity no, I said Paul outlined this one pretty good. It's like he knew I liked the way how I like to preach a sermon, right? Not. But verse 19, in this way they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of a life that is truly life. So the two outcomes for this kind of generosity are that giving stores up eternal treasures and that you get to live real life. The life that is truly life, what in the world does he mean by that? He's contrasting a life that is dependent on self, that is consumed with pride, and it's all about my stuff and my riches and my control and my fears, with a life that is dependent on Jesus, that even though you have stuff and you have money and you have blessings, 
that you have a proper perspective of that stuff in order to be able to bless and give to others and meet the needs of others and take care of your own needs and be free of dependence on those things because you trust God to provide for you. That's the life that is truly life. There's that phrase that financial peace uses that we're going to live like no one else so we can live like no one else. In other words, you discipline yourself now with your finances and your stuff in order that you have more freedom to bless others later with your finances, your time, and your stuff. One final question for you today. And that's your application personally. How healthy is my relationship with my stuff? I've told you before, back in college, we had a phrase that I didn't learn until I got to college. I don't know if they still use it. And it was... DTR, define the relationship. This is when a young man and a young lady start spending time together. And one of their friends will come up and said, so have you had the DTR talk? What? Have you defined the relationship? Are you just friends? Are you dating? Are you steady? Are you a couple? What's, what's your relationship? I was like, whoa, I didn't know I needed to define relationships. I mean, she's just a nice girl and I went out on two dates with her. I don't think we're there yet. Have we had to define the relationship talk with our stuff? And if you haven't already, I pray that my sermon today, that's why we preach expository sermons, book by book, verse by verse, word by word, is to consider what's my relationship with my stuff? Does it own me or do I use it to serve others? Let's pray. God, our Father, we thank you as always for your word. And that every week when we open it up, and not just when we come here on Sunday, but every time that we open it up, you speak to us truth by your Holy Spirit. We thank you for the practical truth that we need on how to live. And the challenge of our stuff, our money and our possessions, our pride and our control or our faith and trust in you in generosity and goodness to others. So God, as you've convicted us already by your Holy Spirit, if we need to change, give us the ability to change. If we need to go home today and get on Financial Peace University's website and sign up for the next class available so we can take positive steps to change. If we need to talk to a friend that we know manages their money better than us, we do that today. We change if we immediately need to make decisions on our spending habits. We would just decide we're going to do it and change. But more than those steps, Father, that we would submit ourselves to you. That you, the God of the whole universe, have given us everything. And we're just stewards of everything. And that we would see ourselves in proper respect to you. And the way we control every bit of stuff that we have. So God, we thank you for your presence to speak to us by your Holy Spirit today. As always, we pray if there's anybody here who needs to trust Christ as their Savior, they do that. Anybody who needs to unite with this church family, they do that as we stand to sing. Amen.